warm welcome to you all. Hope you'll thoroughly enjoy our program. Ladies and gentlemen, it's the Real Britannia podcast, a very British podcast about very British movies with just a hint of professionalism. Good morning, my name's Scott. With me, as usual, I'm pleased to say I'm joined by my co-host and my dear friend Stephen. Hello, sir. Hello. Joining us, it's one of those special occasions where we have a guest host and he's becoming quite a regular now. It's our dear friend Anthony. Hello. Hello, everybody. How are you doing, mate? talking about this. Yeah, very well, thanks. Good, good. We were just laughing off air that... This is a bit of a, a star-spotting exercise, not to the degree of Night to Remember. Thankfully. Thankfully. But there are a few famous faces in this one coming up, yeah? Absolutely, yeah. Um, and it is uh, sometimes, as we were just saying, there's some people that we're seeing out of character or out of place or, or out of facial hair. Um, this, this but, is the um, that, that means we don't automatically recognise them and then suddenly you go, no, no, it is him. He just doesn't have his beard on or, or whatever. Yeah. So, um, just, and look, she, yeah. she hasn't got her moustache, yeah. Glad he's handsome without a moustache, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, just listening to Anthony off air just then and he suddenly recognised Leslie Phillips. With, I, I I don't think I've ever seen Leslie Phillips without a moustache in a movie, to be honest. I think there was a... You, you, there was a, one of the doctors where he yeah. shaves it off but briefly in, in it. To a bit of a trademark, it. wasn't it? Yeah. Mm. And, and Lawrence Naismith with our beard. But we're going to come over... Uh, sorry, but we're going to come on to that. And <laughs> <laughs> come over Lawrence Naismith's beard! Oh, my God! <laughs> don't go on his boat, though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we need to avoid his boat, because... Um, mm. You know, Cockney rhyming slang. Yeah. I am. Um, I, I, he's very arrogant. It's very think, arrogant. Think yeah, he's very arrogant when he gets on his boat. He just can't imagine it ever sinking. Yeah, it's uh, just, yeah. So we'll get back to that later. Yes, that'll all make sense later. <laughs> it's Stephen's choice this week. I want to get straight into this. Um, I've watched it twice. Everybody's watched it twice, which is pretty unusual. Is is that a sign of the quality or the sign of the fact we didn't understand it? Who knows? We're going to go into the train of events from 1949. We'll be back after this. said your birds weren't playing too well, didn't you, Jim? Sit down and strike, I call it. Uh, yes, but what sort of encouragement do you give them, eh? <laughs> well, they've got their old china egg. What more do they want? They want this, Jim. What every hen in the country's been asking for. Well, what is it? <laughs> what is it, eh? It's Johnson's Electrified Hen Output Stimulator. Patent about to be applied for. Goodness, Mr. Johnson, whatever would you think of next? Yeah. <laughs> well, how's it work? Ah, uh, no, you wait a minute, you wait a minute. You answer me this. How would you like to sit yourself down on a nasty cold porcelain egg these chilly mornings? Well, I'm made a bit different to a chicken, you know. Uh, chickens has their feelings, Jim, same as you. Ah, you, uh, you feel that. Hey, careful, hey, boy, careful, hey, careful. Red off. Oh, so it is. I, well, how did that happen? I, I set it for blood heat. Put that under my birds, they'd be laying boiled eggs. Yes, I'll turn off. 
Battery, uh, see? <laughs> yes, of course, it's, it's only in the experimental stage so far. Oh, uh, well, don't worry, Fred. Think of all the trouble Stevenson had with the first loco. Yes, uh, well, he got it right. I, but so will I. <laughs> so will I. We shall have the first one, Jim. That's a promise. Well, sorry very much. I'll have my old bus queuing up for it in no time. Thanks a lot, Fred. Oh, not a bit. Just got to keep on the right side of you from what I hear at the loco, eh? Yeah. Good Mrs. Goodbye, Mr. Johnson. I, uh, I suppose you make a point of talking to them, don't you, Jim? Talking to who? Why, the birds. Oh, it's surprising how, how a bit of conversation, especially first thing, encourages them. Go on. Well, fancy you not knowing that. <laughs> well, I mean, if you, if you kept a, a dog or a horse, you'd say good morning to him, wouldn't you? Oh, I suppose so, but I, I can't see myself saying good morning to a lot of chickens. Well, it's a great mistake. Because they appreciate it. Well, take my lot now. As soon as I pay my first visit in the morning, I, I puts my head down to the popo and I sings out, Good morning, everybody. <laughs> and if I don't get back a good old... <laughs> well, I, I, I feel real worried, I would. <laughs> Dead so? Yeah. Well, well, I was going to have a chat to him. Yeah, you certainly should. Keep off politics. <laughs> Train of Events, released in the UK 1949. Now, it's got three directors, and you'll find out why in a second. And they include the great Sidney Cole, Charles Crichton, and Basil Dearden. What a trio there. It stars Jack Warner, Gladys Henson, Susan Shaw, Leslie Phillips, as we mentioned, Miles Mallison's in there, Valerie Hobson, John Gregson. It's the debut for Peter Finch, I believe, or it's the first recognisable role for Peter Finch. Mm. portmanteau movie Stephen you selected it what's the synopsis mate a train disaster is told in four short stories to give character studies of the people involved how it will affect them and how they deal with it mm. that's from IMDB and it is very much telling the false stories and, and as you say a portmanteau but mm. unlike a lot of the examples that preceded it including like Dead of Night and others this doesn't go through telling the four separate stories with some linking scenes between the two like people's telling a story or, or whatever this mm-hmm. tells them concurrently which I think is something that is you know fairly rare as far as portmanteaus at the time and also you, quite unusual that you get to see what the actual ending is first and then you see mm. um, sort of three days before it leading up to it, um, which is very Columbo-esque. But, um, <laughs> you know, yeah, it, it does come across in a different way, which is quite inventive. And, and the quality is there, mm. to be perfectly honest. I mean, the, the, the styles that it mixes together, for me, it's got some classic healing with regards to the comedy and the, the almost farcical knockabout with some of the stuff to do with the engine driver story yep. and then you've got some, mm-hmm. some of the other story threads are more along the lines of kitchen sink or even a bit film noir really that's uh, again a bit of bit of a difference i think that they're actually mixing them together but they don't feel disjointed they do feel like just you know these are different lives that are happening concurrently rather than there, mm-hmm. there, there's any clash so you know, it may not be to the level of, of something like Third Man or, or whatever, but it is definitely, a, I think, a film that has stuff to talk about with it and some quality enough to warrant us drawing the attention to it. Nice. I'll tell you what I noticed, you mentioning that it doesn't feel disjointed. With the three different directors, personally, I could spot the Basil Dearden ones now. Um, yes. 
we, we've become massive fans of Basil Dearden over the past six years since we've been doing this podcast. And this is another one off my list that I hadn't seen. Mm. And looking at the prisoner of war sequence and the actor segment, I, I just thought, blimey, that is typical Basil Dearden fare there. You know, the engine driver was directed by Sidney Cole and Charles Crichton directed the composer, which sort of makes sense. I think Charles Crichton, which is, you know, he's, he's a real famous sort of healing stalwart of the directing world. And mm. yeah, he, even though, You've got three different people working together and three different styles of directing. It all gelled really well, I think. Mm. It's edited in, in a great way, I think, to make sure the stories are told enough of each part of it in snippets but without them being too long and, and therefore you mm. forget the other stories are too short and you, you can't keep track of, of what that story's doing. I think they've got it exactly right balance on it. I think what helped... Yeah. There was no crossover of characters between each story as well, because sometimes you'll see that, won't you? That there's one yes. storyline going on and another, but there's, you know, a, a relationship between two of the characters that link the two. They were completely separate, but yeah. obviously linked by one thing, which is a train. That is literally the, ho- yeah. the only thing that links them is one train. Mm. And whether that's by fate or by design, you know, we learn as we go through the movie how how they're going to actually all be on the train at the same time, which is exactly. Really and, I, and, mm. and I don't know whether they came up with the title first and then tr- created a movie around it because obviously the title is very clever. Good clever. But I think that's something a bit more of a, a modern thing with the reality TV shows that they come up with a, a, a title for it and then try to create a background um, yeah. show behind yeah. it. Um, Barry Allen so, Partridge. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> idea for a program, <laughs> train of events. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Anthony, first time watch yes. and second time watch for you, mate. What did What did you think? Is this your sort of movie? Do you normally oh, sort of turn to these black and white British movies of the forties? Absolutely, yes, yes. This is a real find, I must say. Mm. Now, when I I actually I did watch it twice. I watched it about three weeks ago, and I thought I want to watch this film without having any pressure of making notes and thinking about it. I thought yeah. I want to have one good watch, and I had a look on Wikipedia. When I saw 1940s Portmanteau, mm-hmm. you already mentioned Dead of Night. I kind of yeah. I immediately thought of that, and then I found, of course, two separate directors in common. But mm. no, I just absolutely loved it. And the first time I watched it, I knew there were loads of details I could see. So it needs more than one viewing, in my opinion. And it's quite short as well, isn't it? So. Yeah, it's it's yeah. a fairly easy watch. I mean, even yeah. though there are dozens and dozens of characters in four or five separate little stories, mm. it's easy enough to follow. You don't get mixed up between the stories. You don't think, you know, who was that guy? What's the relationship here? Or the, it, it does it really well because each director gives you a good solid 10 to 15 minutes of story. We move yeah. to the next one, then we go back to the original story and it goes through and it follows on. And it's just a really great way of bringing it all together. I liked it. I really enjoyed it. I, I watched it all oh, about three, four weeks ago because I did a little mini review for the Talking Pictures TV podcast mm. and it got to last night and I thought, you know what, I, I don't think I can remember anything too much to talk about it today. So I, I popped it on in the background this morning and it all came back to me quite easily and I think, oh, this is great and this bit's coming up now and I was quite looking forward to some of the scenes. It was like really mm. sort of edge of the seat. Even though I'd seen it, it was edge of the seat stuff in certain places. 
it made me think as well with the, with the train thing because we did Strangers on a Train, didn't we? Mm-hmm. With, there's train sequences in Bond films and stuff. It makes you think how many personal stories are, are on any any train, you know, with a couple of hundred passengers or whatever. All those stories that could be happening. It's yeah. one of those, isn't it? People always go back to sort of trains as a setting, you know. It's, it's because, well, there's hundreds of people whose lives you don't know what's going on, you mm. know, behind the closed doors and the curtains. And, and when when you look into their personal lives, you end up with a tale of murder, a tale of you know, all of this stuff that's going on. It's quite gritty, the 1949, some of this stuff. Yeah. And then you've got chickens with beak wilt or whatever it is that the chickens have got that it's trying to, <laughs> trying to fix. Miles yeah. Mallison with his electric egg. Yeah. yeah. Talking of Death of Night, of course. <laughs> not, not a no, euphemism. Miles Mallison, room for one more inside, actually. Room for exactly, yeah. 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 <laughs> So Crichton did The Golfers, didn't he, in that other film, Dead of Night? In Dead of Night, which was um, Charles that and Caldecott, was, wasn't it? That was yeah. a very much comedic one in Dead of Night, mm. wasn't it? And then what did so Basil Dearden did The Hearst, did he? I think, I he think did. so. Yeah. I don't know. I'm assuming he must have done, yeah. I think, he, I think I... Or did he do the one with the kid at the party that goes back into... Oh, there were so many in there. I have to watch that again, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's run through these stories. What's the first one we come across? It's well, if you read the Wikipedia page, it, it sort of breaks them down. But unfortunately, to be honest, it, it breaks them down to make out that the, the first one isn't the train driver one. And for me, watching it, for me, I, I feel that it is the train driver one. Is the first. Oh, well, first start, one, really. well, they start. And, um, they start and finish with it, don't they? So, yeah. yeah. Let's start. Um, let's start yeah, with the train drivers. So yeah, so trend driver, you, you know, you've got our favourite Mr. Warner, mm-hmm. um, who, you know, again with his, his regular screen wife. Gladys Henson, <laughs> yeah, perpetual. So I, I think within, uh, uh, a year or so that, that also appeared in Blue Lamp together. Yes. His husband and wife, and we must review that sometime. Um, <laughs> and, um, <laughs> I refer, so, listeners, so, I refer <laughs> listeners back to the dozens of episodes that refer to the legendary Lost Real Britannia episode. That's, that's really a film that demands multiple <laughs> podcasting, I think. Yeah. You know, it's oh, all those... right, we'll do it again. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but yes, yeah, so the, you know, there's, uh, to some extent, it's the, the story of just the, you know, an average Joe who's uh, well thought of by his bosses and his colleagues and, and just doing the hard slog and working extra bits of, of overtime just because, and the demands that puts on his long-suffering wife who never complains and the details of his daughter and, and the, the young man that she's seen who happens to be working with the father and it's, mm-hmm. it's just the, the precursor the kitchen sinks just the the home life of the average man which then you know does have some healing comedic parts to it but it's just, it's just the average joe cracking on with his with his life and his his family and i think that is good to start off with because i think it brings in people to to be able to immediately identify at the beginning of the film and go oh right we know what we're dealing with here it's not suddenly dealing with people that are from a different world um but then it leads in minds that yeah it's a fine starting point as you say before we get into the more darker stories because Mm. there's some real sort of murder and mayhem going on for the rest of the movie you know it gets very dark in places Mm. and although it's not quite comic relief as you say Stephen there are some really nice light touches like the Miles Mallison bit with with the chicken Mm. even the details like the fact that Jack Warner repairs watches in his spare time 
has no relevance whatsoever, does it, to this story? But no, and there's a great bit where the, you know the, the, somebody knocks at the door and he says, "Oh, I'll get that," and then carries on with what he's doing, and she's going, well, <laughs> "Are you gonna then?" And it's like, "What? You can get that?" And it's like, "Oh, yeah, yeah." Uh, you know, it, and it is that uh, her aspiration is just for him to have a nine-to-five job and not be out till 4 a.m. in, you know, in Glasgow. And, yeah. and and that's, you know, the level that they're at. And it's it's that sort of modest aspiration and, and just wanting a, a cosy little life mm. that does draw you in. And as you say, with the little details of, and nuances of the mm. family, I think it just it feels nice. Also, the girl is... Doris, is it? Is going out with an American. It's funny the way they talk about, oh, he's an American. You don't imagine they've probably met many Americans. So that, that was a little touch. Yeah, coming back over after having been over in the war and then uh, mm. returning over and the, the fracture that causes between uh, her, her and her boyfriend just because she's going to go and, and catch up with this fellow, even though there was nothing between them. And it just, yeah. and, and as you say, the little references about the fact that hanging around the Americans meant that she started calling her father Pop rather than, rather than Dad. <laughs> and then towards yeah. the end of the film, he, 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 she calls him Dad and he goes, oh, I've got my own nationality back over. Um, oh, and I didn't little, that. No, I didn't yeah, notice that. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, uh, when she comes, after she's been to see an American chap at the the tail end of the film and she comes back after that night out and he's saying oh you know your boyfriend he'll come round it's alright and she has been all reassuring to her and she goes oh thanks dad and he goes oh I've got my nationality back over and <laughs> um, having made reference to it earlier on in the film about being called pop and, and all that so um, nice. yeah it's, it's just a nice sort of snapshot of home life for people um, and it does yeah. ground this film compared to some of the other stories in, in some ways with some comfort. Oh, yeah, also a great. Sorry, also about saying that. Also a great snapshot of, of post-war London as mm. well. You know, we, we don't see the rationing and all the the hardship side of things, but it just gives you a really good sort of idea of like people getting back to work after the war. You can imagine that like that son-in-law mm. had fought, you know, during World War Two, and now was become a train driver himself you know and people getting back on with their lives you know it's only four years isn't it it's 49 this was made yeah 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 sorry Uh, well it's set in set in 48 i think and released in 49 because Ah. there's a calendar on the wall in one of the places um i think it's the station and the calendar that's got 48 on it oh you're really observant this morning aren't you (laughs) (laughs) i I, I admit i read that in the trivia (laughs) i'm not (laughs) I'm not going to take credit where it's not true. <laughs> <laughs> you take credit for the Beatles reference later on, though, aren't you? Well, you should, yes, as you should. Yes, yes. And I don't know what that is, listeners. No, no. This all is I've got is that the train's going to Liverpool. <laughs> That's all I've got. <laughs> we'll find out during the Hall of Fame. I can't work it out myself. I'm still looking at the cast list trying to find it, but I'm sure there's something. <laughs> is the second sequence then the actor are we going to say is that how we're going through because the train driver is initially the first one so the actor according yeah. to Wikipedia it seems to be that mm. um, notable for it being the first major appearance of Peter Finch he gets a credit at the beginning introducing Peter Finch looks like a very young um, Leslie Howard in yes. this mm. very very similar looking now this is possibly the darkest of all the stories yeah yeah, yeah I guess yeah. so yeah yeah. Mm. And, and, there's and, the, and there's the manicness to it that you would see in some other films as you say that have got that dark side and it ends up being that's what the whole film's about about a fractured relationship somebody returning back into somebody's life and and mm. the, the collision that causes and etc and 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 
this just been a, a part of this film and, it, and the fact that it doesn't overawe everything else in the film shows I think how well balanced they've done things yeah it's, it's very I think the use of that really jaunty song you know what it made me think of of course was The Shining you know they used that oh, midnight do, 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 that Ray Noble <laughs> stuff and it just seems more creepy doesn't it it's it's these foolish things isn't it it's, that's it it's yeah. the tune and it's almost I'm going to say Hitchcockian I love, I love saying I was, that word just going to say that yeah Hitchcock yeah, yeah. You know, that tale of murder, but with that element of, of lightness in the background that you're like, oh, my God, that's really unsettling because mm. this gramophone record is playing these foolish things. And he actually strangles her to the sound of that music, you know, and straight away I thought that's Hitchcock. And, and you've got the fact that he returns to his apartment and hears that playing because the landlady's gone in cleaning and just put it on while she's mm, in. Yeah. And the, you know, the police turn up and say, no, we're, you know, about your wife. And he's, he's thinking, find me. And then it's like, no, we, we were looking for her and we, you know, we lost her. And that sort of dual thread of it that, you know, you want, you're thinking one thing and then it's another is, as you say, Hitchcockian where there's that that twist in there uh, which allows it to be very engaging and emotive well it's interesting this is actually nine years before um no it's not nine years sorry two years before uh, strangers on a train mm-hmm. another train film do you remember the girl gets um, strangled at the fairground the scene they're in the playing glasses, that jaunty yeah they're playing that jaunty song that she'd just been singing with her oh, of course, man yeah. friends yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, so there's definitely a bit there. But also having the the trunk, and he was uh, rehearsing Shakespeare, he, he's looking at the trunk. That's so Hitchcock, isn't it? It's that suspense thing, isn't it? It's, yeah, a body in a trunk. Yeah, absolutely. Rope, you know, we've, we've all these. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> all these references. Very good. It's the darkest of all the stories, as I say. Amazing, not... amazing, though, amazing though, to see Peter Finch, because the only things I know him from now are this and Network. Pretty much. And <laughs> that's the entire span of his career. First, first and last, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Everything in between. Between who knows what the man did. Well, he's, um, <laughs> well, he's going to crop up in one of the kitchen sinks, isn't he? He does, yeah. Oh, does he? Um, which I can't, I'm trying to remember which one he's in. But yeah, so we will be seeing him uh, again in that contest. But And I think that the woman who plays his wife, a uh, strange wife, you know, she's very vampish in the whole thing. I think that is an extraordinary performance, really, from her. I don't think the piece would pull together so well if she didn't play that part well. I think it needs to be that she's got that element to it, otherwise you go, oh, well, it's just your wife coming back what's the problem yeah um, you have to feel that yeah absolutely i like what she says i can never bear your tragic look because she's sort of making out that he's almost an actor when he comes home as well reference don't she she says oh you know you looking sad there it's it's um, one of the best performances i've ever seen you doing doing all this kind of stuff so she is needling at him about him having genuine feelings and mm. uh, you're absolutely right Anthony. yeah i want to read some of the ones later with the composers all those musical references those musical metaphors yeah <laughs> with the wife later on yeah very clever script. It is, because Stephen T.B. Clark is, is partly responsible for some of these, isn't he? I'm assuming it's the Crichton ones. Yeah, he's, uh, I mean, I don't, difficult to work out which ones, as I say, although there's references you can read in different bits and pieces to do with which director did which bits and all this kind of stuff. They don't delineate it properly in uh, anywhere as far as actually announcing at the beginning of the film that this mm. bit is done by this. Yeah. Um, so we're absolutely in, in that territory where you've got some really alumni as far as the people who are contributing and it includes Tibby Clark and Angus McPhail as well yeah so again Hitchcock writer Angus McPhail that's a point mm. oh now <laughs> what one did he write <laughs> there we go um, it's, a, it's a good 
good guess, isn't it? Really? Yeah, you, uh, that, that's about it. So. That's possible yeah. then, isn't it? So, okay, the second story, according to Wikipedia, I'm trying to remember the sequence of events here, but I'm pretty sure it is the Prisoner of War. To me, this is the most interesting one, not necessarily for the story, but because of the actors involved. Mm. Now, the wife. The, well, the, the basic story is we've got a German prisoner of war on the run, basically. Is that the story? Is he's, he's remained in England after liberation and has not returned home? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I got the impression that he'd never been captured in the first place. Oh, um, right, OK. And that's, I was trying to work that out. Both watches that I had, I was trying to pick the detail out of the reference because she talks about stumbling across him in the woods and, and not turning him in. And I'm trying to work out whether that was during the war when, you know, he's you know, crash landed or whatever, mm. and or whether it was that he'd escaped from a camp or, or whether it was that the war had finished and he hadn't yeah. been repatriated because he decided decided to, he didn't want to go back to that broken country. So well, it's, it's described here, a prisoner of war on the run who doesn't wish to return to Germany. So you can read into that mm, any yeah. of those possibilities, can't you? Uh, and the story is that, you know, they're moving about from place to place and they're sort of being discovered at every tw- every turn, aren't they? Because the landlady realises who this guy is mm. and sort of demands the room back by saying, look, you're moving out tomorrow. If you want to stay, it's £3 a week, some extortionate amount of money. Yeah. Uh, and if you don't feel happy about it, go to the police, you know. And of course, they can't go to the police because obviously he's on the run for whatever reason being a, a German prisoner of war now what I think is interesting about this is the actress involved now the lady who plays the wife is a very young actress called Joan Dowling yeah okay. tragic Tragic. tragic, tragic story. We love a tragic British actress story, don't we, mate? So Joan Dowling, for those that don't know, she was a child actress uh, with no formal training, believe it or not. She had no acting training whatsoever. And there's an Ealing movie that we haven't done and we must do very soon called Hue and Cry. came out a few mm-hmm. years before. This. Uh, it's the one about the children. And, and it's a group of like crooks, isn't it, using um, children's books as code or something. And it's all set post-war amongst the bomb sites of London. And it stars a very young Harry Fowler as well as this particular lady, Joan Dowling. Now, Joan Dowling is only 21 in this movie, and round about this time, she married Harry Fowler, uh, having met him, you know, as child actors on, on Hue and Cry, and they married quite young. About four or five years after this, Harry Fowler had an affair, allegedly. And she found out and stuck her head in the gas oven and killed herself mm-hmm. at the age of 25, 26. Tragic, tragic story because yes. she had such a bright future ahead of her. That's why this one's always sort of poignant to me wherever I see, because there's not many Joan Darling movies out there. And it's just sad because you just see a glimpse of what could have potentially been one of our greatest character actresses. Yeah, yeah. that look in her eyes in this, you know, that look of compassion she has mm-hmm. in her eyes is fantastic. Yeah, she doesn't have to do much. So, yeah, she's eyes. got she's got a touch of Sylvia Sidney to her. Yeah, um, in the you know the 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 sort of that doe eyes that she can do, but also the you know the sort of quivering, trying to hold it together when you know things are uh, bad and just that you know diminutive stature and stuff. I think she's got a lot of those qualities, and as you say. Sad that we didn't get to see um, more of her talent as the years progressed, because mm. if she was already at that la- that level at that age, yeah, uh, who knows what she could have gone on to? Absolutely, yeah. And so their part in the journey towards the train is that she steals the money from the landlady, sees the mm-hmm. open tin of rent money and takes quite a fair amount of money. It's 30 plus, is it 30 quid? I can't remember. It's, it's, whatever it is, it's yeah. not enough to pay for a ticket to Canada or America. Where are they off to? Canada. Canada. Yeah. 
She can only afford one ticket to Canada, but she doesn't tell the husband or the boyfriend whatever he is and just goes along with his fact that, look, we've got to get to Liverpool to go to Canada. Uh, no, and he's under the impression that they're both going to be fleeing the country. And we sort of leave it at that, don't we? That, so that's how it pretty much ends before we get to the train sequence. You know, they're on the train, on the run, basically, on their way to Liverpool, and he's expecting them both to, you know, make a safe life in another country. Mm. And, and I does, love this story. He, yeah. He does make a reference, though, doesn't he, that um, later on he makes a, a, a reference in desperation, something about, oh, uh, I've got to get out of this country, you know, even if it's, you know, to, to Canada or, or the United States, even if it's even if it's on my own, and you know, because he's tried to convince her that he's she's too good for him and he needs to mm, to, mm. to leave him and he should go off on his own. Yeah. And unbeknownst to him, that's what she's got in mind. That actually happens. Um, yeah. Yeah. They say so, I like this story. It's, it's not my favourite story with regard to sort of keeping my attention and and the actual writing of it, but. This one is, is just interesting because of the background of the actress involved. Yeah. Yeah. That's no, right. a good one. Yeah. Mm. And it is the, the different level, the different, the, you know, the darkness to it and the sadness to it and the, the almost that it's just the hopelessness of it. Yeah. Whereas, you know, in, in the, such as a train driver one, it's, it's, it's very much about aspiring for that hope and keeping the hope, whereas they feel like they're hopeless in the, the, yeah. Okay, mm. the composer. For me, mm. the most disappointing out of all the segments, despite the fact we've got John Gregson and Valerie Hobson amongst others in this sequence, and it's the bit that's directed by Charles Gryan. Mm. This was the bit I found a bit tiresome. This one. Oh no, I liked it a lot. Yeah, it's my I, favorite, I, thought, I, think. I thought you might go on. Talk us <laughs> Just through the it, musical then, mate, because- thing. Yeah. yeah, talk us through it. Well, I've got a bit of Wikipedia here. Yeah, composer Raymond Hillary is travelling to a performance with his star pianist, the temperamental uh, Irina. And I thought just all those bits where they were performing and she's so completely over the top when she's playing the piano. <laughs> da da You know, and it's just the, <laughs> the looks they give each other. It's, and I just thought the wife. There's some good female roles in this uh, film, mm, aren't there? Yeah, the wife true. in this one. I mean, okay, she's just playing. It's one note, you know. It's that kind of, I know exactly what's going on at all times. And But all those musical uh, metaphors, I did write one down, I must admit. What a magnificent theme and what a magnificent number of variations Raymond has played. The harpist Ooh. struck a chord with him, a whole series of arpeggios. So it's, it's a bit technical. If you didn't know what arpeggios or diminished <laughs> chords were, but you get the point. But the wife, the wife, the way she describes all his affairs in metaphors, I, I love that. And there's when he's been quizzed by John Gregson about the whole thing to do with whether it's about one man loving two women or, or two women oh, yeah. one man. That's and how it, yeah. that then is is obviously meant to reflect and, and does you know, quite strongly. It's obvious that that's then the theme of that story being played out in his personal life as well as just the that's end piece of, of some music that he's composed. I think, yes, there's a lot of clever references in it as far as the dialogue. I think, and that's what yeah. perhaps saves it from being, like Scott says, a bit of a filler um, and unnecessary and not really working. It's, it's the dialogue that makes it work, I think. Oh, yeah, I'm not saying I didn't enjoy it. Just out of the, you know, out of the four separate stories, this was the one, I don't know, tonally just sort of felt slightly out of place because we've got, but then again, we've got comedy, we've got murder, we've got, this or melodrama there is no 
genre that you could place this movie within because it covers every single aspect doesn't it and this is like this real sweeping dramatic melodrama segment i think if you go back to dead of the night this is Mm. almost like the golfers sequence okay yeah which i didn't like particularly in that film but yeah it's just yeah that's pure light relief it seems like yeah but i think this is the wordy one this is the one for musical nerds like me (laughs) we're gonna know what arpeggios and diminished chords are i think it's a bit yeah it's a bit of an acquired taste probably but I really liked it. I just liked the whole, uh, how ridiculous it was. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. <laughs> and John Gregson being a prude, um, and the the woman alongside him, who was also meant to be uh, there as a, as a criticism to the composer, who ends up just mm. repeatedly saying how she liked it. <laughs> um, <laughs> and spoiling the whole gig, essentially, um, in, in that, before she actually finds a voice and contradicts John Gregson. But yeah, I think that John Gregson, I think, um, a, t- a small part in this, but as usual, doing a, a great job with it. Must be an early role for him as well, Stephen, because most yeah. of the Gregson stuff we've seen has been in the 50s, hasn't it? I don't think we've really covered anything in the 40s with John Gregson, and it's it's quite a very minor role for him as well. He's not... Tis. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Mm. We will cover, I think, the train driver's story in just a second, because that leads into sort of like the grand finale, where all of these come together, all of these segments. Mm. But before we do that, I think we ought to take a little wander up to the Hall of Fame, chaps, and just have a little look. Because, as we said, it's it's not in the same league as Night of Night to Remember. But there are still some people here that I think are going to get brought up by Stephen. Grab your keys, mate. Let's have a little wander up the path. Village Hall of Fame. Now, for those that don't know, if an actor, an actress, a producer, director, or anybody of note appears on the show three times, they get inducted into the Hall of Fame. But we, we couldn't afford a hall could we, Stephen? An actual Hall of Fame. So we had the Village yeah. Hall, the Village Hall of Fame, uh, which is now bursting at the bloody seams. <laughs> yes, it's, it's, it could have, it really should have been the Albert Hall. Um, <laughs> Get it that way. <laughs> yeah. So, so, run us through yeah, it, mate. There's only 39 people listed. Even the uncredited ones are still, it only makes 39, but okay. um, it, it does contribute to quite a lot of people still um, making multiple appearances. Now, obviously, we've mentioned about Peter Finch making his uh, first parents uh, as for this podcast as it were yeah. have an introducing credit but um, there are a number of, of people just making their six people in fact making their second appearances amongst them uh, Brian Coleman who strangely enough the film he previously appeared in on the podcast was Mona Lisa which is uh, quite <laughs> a dramatic <laughs> difference between the two um, but as we're, wow. we're pointing out the, the diametric difference between the two but uh, mm. we've also got Philip Dale and Patrick uh, who was in Dan Busters uh, Patrick uh, Doonan with mm-hmm. Eleven film of Lawrence Payne, who was one of the other uh, introducing credits of Matter of Life and Death, and uh, Henry Hewitt, who was in Scrooge. However, it is uh, a second appearance is for Mark Dignam. Now, his brother has been in any number of, of things, I think several things that we've reviewed before, and, and um, I think but the other thing to mention about him is he did a, a BBC radio production of King Lear, and really? uh, he played, played the Earl of Gloucester in that, and that piece of, of, of dialogue sound recording uh, oh. which used as part of a fade out um, on a Whoa. song called I Am, I Am the Walrus by no. the I Am the Walrus I don't know that one that must be <laughs> Uh, the actual recording. Yeah, if, oh. you read the tri- if they read the trivia for him, it says, along with Philip Gard, he appeared in the fade out of the Beatles' I Am the Walrus in his oh, role as the Earl of nice. Gloucester, taken from the BBC radio production of King Lear. And I and, saw uh, that, and I was oh. thought, oh, 
So this is Mark Dignam, yeah? Mark Dignam and is as I say, his brother we've had in I think it's six or seven roles before Basil. Uh, Dig numbers has been yeah seven maybe eight different stuff before and again he's a bit part actor really and oh. he's his younger brother but his younger brother had that bit of trivia about him which you know probably wouldn't have been worth mentioning if we didn't have Anthony on to, to, to we wouldn't have we wouldn't have discovered that would we would not have no. been there you go mate you no. learn something new every time Scott not to tell you what clips to put on your own show but I've got the isolated uh, King Lear if you want to put a few seconds on it <laughs> I think we might have to just to identify Mark Dignam, his real name was Cuthbert. Cuthbert Mark Dignam is his real name. Scott, this is a perfect... <laughs> Scott, it's a perfect chance for us to say things like serviceable villain. <laughs> <laughs> Sit you down, father, rest you. Yeah. That oh, is amazing. Well, well, oh, yeah. well researched, sir. Well researched. <laughs> so, it was it was an accidental find, I, I must admit, because they don't, you know, when you've got trivia on the IMDb page, it'll only show one on the front when you first look at it unless you actually click on it. And it just happened uh, to be, and it randomises which one it shows, and it just was that one. And I went, I'm taking that screen capture quickly, <laughs> making sure I remember. So, well played, um, sir. Well played. So, and so with regards to the rest of the cast, we've got seven people making their third appearance, which includes uh, Arthur Hambling for uh, Always Rains on a Sunday and Lavender Hill Mob. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gladys Henson, Always Rains on a Sunday and Night to Remember. Olga Lindo, Inspector Calls and Sapphire. Anthony Quayle, who was uh, a, an uncredited part playing oh. the violin at the end. Yeah. He was in Eagle Has Landed and Guns of Navarone. So for once he was holding a violin rather than a gun. Uh, <laughs> Percy Walsh, oh, Mr. Porter and Scott of the Antarctic. Wiley Watson, what a name. Wiley, Wiley Watson. Wiley, Wiley Watson. 39 Steps and Whiskey Galore and Meadows White in Long Arm and Pool of London. So they all get seats in the hall um, mm-hmm. due to making third appearances. Uh, however, there are four people making their fourth appearances. Yep. Charles Crichton uh, as director, which is Dead of Night, Fish Called Wonder and Lavender Hill Mob. Angus McPhail as a writer, uh, Always Winters on Sunday, Dead of Night and Went the Day Well. Um, oh, actually, no. I'm sure there's another one he did. Oh, he did Whiskey Glow as well, so that's fifth for him. Mm-hmm. Johnny Schofield, uh, in which we serve Went the Day Well, Wicked Lady. Susan Shaw, who plays the daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, in the, the train scenes, uh, Always Rains on a Sunday in Pool of London, and Jack Warner, who again was in Always Rains on a Sunday, uh, Quatermass and uh, Scrooge. Excellent. So, so I'll through them. Now, fifth appearances, we've got two people, one of which is, is Tibby Clark, Dead of Night, Gideon's Day, and Lavender Hillmop. However, we've also got Leslie Phillips, who has given good moustache to previous <laughs> films. <laughs> Carry on constable, carry on nurse, carry on teacher, and pool of London. So quite a bit of difference there. That there's uh, doing all the carry ons up until the point, and then suddenly yeah. pool of London. So John Gregson, uh, six appearances. Genevieve, Holly and the Ivy, Lavender Hill Mob, uh, Scott of the Antarctic, and Whiskey Glow. Same as Michael Horden has six appearances as well. How I Won the War, Passport to Pimlicord, Man Who Never Was, Scrooge and Theatre of Blood, uh, which spans a, a long career, obviously, with Theatre of Blood being at the end of, of that and how I won the war. And then Michael Ralph, who um the uh, producer who managed to do uh, Legal Gentleman, Man Who Haunted Himself, Pool of London, Sapphire and 
violent playground. Moving on then to one of our favourites of British cinema in, in, in every sense is a seventh appearance for uh, Basil Dayden. Excellent. So, uh, well deserved and in some ways just surprising there out more. But Cruel Sea, Legal Gentleman, Man Who Haunted Himself, Pool of London, Sapphire and Violent Playground. And it's also a seventh appearance for Lawrence Naismith. Amazing Mr. Blunden, Dan Busters, Gideon's Day, Man Who Never Was, Night to Remember and Pool of London. Miles Mallison, uh, unsurprisingly, uh, on his 12th appearance. Just for, room for uh, one uh, more appearance, you might say. Just for one more appearance, yeah. Oh, very good. 39 Steps, Admiral Crichton, Dead of Night, Dracula, Gideon's Day, Heavens Above, Hound of the Basketballs, Man Who Never Was, Peeping Tom, Private Progress and Scrooge. And then making his 13th appearance, we've got Michael Balfour. <laughs> <laughs> I know there's more. I know there's one more to come. Fifty nine, nine steps. Always ends on a Sunday. Cool sea, dead of night. Dunkirk, lavender hill mob, long arm. Passports, pen with the car. Pool of London, Scott of the Antarctic. Went there well. And we see glow. And then finally, the one you've been waiting for, Victor <laughs> yes. Harrington, who was well, he's just a. A man in the background as usual. I don't, I mean, I don't know what you know, he was playing in this. I when, he, when he was, check. when was he, he not just a man in, in I think he was in the theatre in the audience. Theatre audience, it says, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think audience. if I remember correctly. So, <laughs> this audience won, that is. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, <laughs> Dr. No, Carry On Regardless, The Entertainer, Frenzy, From Russia With Love, Georgia Girl, Gideon's Day, Inspector Calls, Ipcrest Foul, Man Who Haunted Himself, Night to Remember, The Reckoning, The Rebel, Rocky Horror Picture Show and Trouble in Star. How many was that, sorry? Only 16. Only 16. She was only 16. She was only 16 years old. So, and I believe that's putting him in the front position. Uh, as far as the most appearances of anybody. Oh, where uh, he was for quite a while until people like Cyril Chamberlain and that sort of like leapfrogged him and, you know, we've had other people, haven't we, sort of like battling oh, for the top people, position. Yeah, there was people like Fred Wood and people like that. Yeah. Just like, going, well, who's he? I've never heard of him. I've never seen him. And, and, but then that's how we were originally with Victor Harrington and then obviously uh, the other Harringtons tried to chase him as well but not doing such a good job. <laughs> so uh, he's on on the top slot, and um, you know even like Guy Sand even isn't isn't there touching him yet because he's up and he's one behind. Excellent. So yes, there you go. That's that is the cast and that is the Beatles reference. Very <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nice. Yeah, I think I mentioned off air. Michael Horden looked old in 1949. Yeah. yeah. As soon as he put that pipe in his mouth and he's got the trilby and the long raincoat, it it, it aged. You know, that's how we know Michael Horden as old Michael. Even in 1949, he looked like old Michael Horden. Just trying to have a quick look, see if there's anybody else worth mentioning. I mean, we've covered most of the bases here of, of the famous faces and the names. Probably a good point now, just to finish off by just going into the final story, which is the conclusion of the train driver's story. Yeah. Leading into the train crash without giving too much away at the ending, I think, because I'd like, you know, if people haven't seen this before, to find out who survives, who dies, and what happens in, the, in this massive train crash at the end of the end of the move. As for the conclusion of the train driver's story, this is bizarre the way some of this sequence of events happens. And <laughs> The son-in-law has decided he doesn't want to be a train driver anymore, basically, because, you know, the girlfriend is not happy, he wants to do something else. And he goes towards the boss's office to hand in his notice or to tell him he's quitting or whatever. And Jack Warner has a bit of a scuffle, ends up on the floor, and Leslie Phillips tries to stop him, punches him on the nose, and he bangs his head on the door and collapses to the floor. (laughs) 
So is there's comedy we... there because he, he bangs his head on the door and the boss goes, "Come in, come in." And then, and then by the time they've dragged him out of out of the way, the boss comes out and looks around and goes, hmm. "And it's, you know, it's classic, classic, really, you know, physical comedy in that sense, but done in such a way that it's classic healing as well, and, and yeah, perf- yeah, perfectly fits in with this whole mood." As we've said, this just genres a go-go here at the moment because mm. you know, we've got the the darkness of Peter Finch strangling somebody upstairs in his in his little flat to, to this knockabout thing with Leslie Phillips punching somebody on the nose, and then they decide that to keep him out of the way, Jack Warner's going to have to take his shift on the train. So they pop him onto an empty well, it's not empty, but they pop him onto an open carriage, don't they? That's transporting fish to yeah. Macclesfield. To Macclesfield, yeah. yeah. And he ends up, I don't know, four hours later in Macclesfield in the middle of nowhere on the on this fish cart so jack warner's taken over the shift and in the run-up to the journey to liverpool this is the bit i think that you sort of hinted at as well anthony where you get this great sequence within the train where you've got these separate stories mm. This is the only point where they all come together. They're on the train, but they're not interacting with each other. So you've got the nervousness of the prisoner of war and his girlfriend because she's convinced that the policemen who are on the train, Michael Horden, are looking for her, where in fact they're looking for Peter Finch and the body in the hamper, which they find. Quentin Tarantino moment almost when they open the hamper. I thought the camera was going to go from the hamper looking up, which is a classic Tarantino. And and, and, and a glow, yeah. Yeah. So you've what do you got think this. Quentin Tarantino took his portmanteau masterpiece uh, oh. from inspiration from this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, the stories do connect, though, don't they? Just time, yeah, and, and t- they connect a little bit, and things aren't told in the right order in this. So you know, mm-hmm. I could claim. Yeah, it's, it's literally this is where it all sort of gels, you know, because we yeah. we said they were separate stories, and they're not in the same carriage. You know, some of the guys are in the smoking carriage, some are in the main sort of second class bit, and the policeman's walking up and down the, the the entire length of the train trying to find Peter Finch, having found the body in the guard's carriage in the hamper. Prisoner of war is panicking because the police are on the train. The composer is is still arguing in a separate carriage. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love the bit when I love the bit when it, he's telling Irina that she played one wrong note, isn't she? And she screams. And, <laughs> and it's it, combined with the scream of the train. That was brilliant. As it whistles past. Yeah. yeah. And that's his way of dumping her without actually dumping her. He's actually yeah. getting her to dump him by uh, upsetting her on the thing that she holds most dear, which is her yeah. professionalism and perfectionism. Because yeah. he wasn't having an affair with her. She was having an affair with him, you see. Yeah. I see he removed the blame earlier, didn't he? That's yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, without going into the crash itself, I mean, this run-up to the crash, this 10-minute sequence, is marvellous. I don't know who was mm. responsible for directing or screenwriting. Perhaps it was a combination of all the parties involved, but it just brings together these four separate stories in just this marvellous sequence to a, like, a tragic ending. I love it. I love this little bit of the run-up before the ending. Oh, it's brilliant. I love how um, Peter Finch has got the Shakespeare dialogue playing in his head as well, because... Mm. It's obviously about murder. I think it's Richard the Second. It's obviously about murder and you know betrayal and things like that. So oh, it's brilliant. So many little touches. That's what I mean. This really demands multiple viewings. I definitely, definitely enjoyed it on this second viewing this morning. I mean, I yeah. was just sort of having it on in the background, but I ended up like stopping and watching it because I was thinking, no, I really enjoyed this first time round, and there's a lot to it that I missed. Yeah, so, very good. It is one of those films that you, repeated watchings means you pick up details that you didn't see in, in the first uh, watch or the, or the previous watch even. I mean, listen, you know, I watched it twice for the podcast here, but obviously neither of those were the, the first time I'd, I'd watched it. I've seen it a number of times before, and 
Um, although, yes, I've forgotten a lot of bits and pieces of it because it's been a couple of years since I, I watched it, but it certainly is replete with those details and nuances that whether it's dialogue or whether it's just camera shots or whether it's, you know, just the look on people's faces and the performances, there's so many little bits in there that the repeated watchings do give us. Yeah, and, and the dialogue touch, yeah, the dialogue touches I've really noted, yeah. As I say, as Stephen mentioned, the pedigree of the script writing anyway, it's bound to have some great sort of quotable lines within this movie because of T.B. Clark and the others that were responsible for it. Mm. And then the director's doing their wonderful job with yeah. the scripts. And then you've got people playing to their strengths as character actors as well. You know, that ingredients is all come together perfectly to make a, a, a something that's richer than, than their individual parts. It's just one of those wonderful mm. movies that we say this quite often, Ealing is known for the comedies, but go back and look at some of the dramas, because the dramas are quite outstanding in, in most cases, and this is a great example of a great Ealing drama. Just going to mention something else, guys. We may review this at some point. Are you aware of a movie called Friday the 13th? from 1933 oh no <laughs> it's nothing to do with people in hockey masks I've seen it? Thursday the 12th but I haven't seen Friday the 12th <laughs> right that, this is the sequel Stephen okay <laughs> basically Directed by Victor Savile, starring Jesse Matthews, Ralph Richardson, Max Miller, Robertson Hare are probably the four, you know, most recognisable faces in this. But the story is about several passengers in the run-up to a bus crash, told in a completely different way. You haven't got, like, these four different directors taking different things, and but it's, it's this run-up to, like, this horrific bus crash but it depicts like the lives of the passengers before so it's I don't know if it's an influence for the, for this particular movie or but it's, it's probably worth looking at I haven't seen it for a long long time um, and we may actually go back to it but yeah it's, it's not an unknown quantity this movie just put it that way there were other examples mm. of this type of thing and as we also mentioned the portmanteau genre as well Dead of Night is, is the ultimate and the classic that everybody knows Yeah. so if, if you're a fan of Dead of Night are we recommending this movie for people that haven't seen Dead of Night you know it's that sort of style of movie yeah it's not quite as horrific literally like horror but mm. I mean there's horror elements to this but I think the thing Stephen said right at the beginning is that how, how the genres that it has so it is kitchen sink it was like um, the engine drive is a bit like early Coronation Street isn't it but in the south it's, it's true it's, it's <laughs> yes yeah, that very yeah because I the only reason I mentioned that is that I've, I've taken to watching old episodes of Coronation Street <laughs> the, literally the early one 1960 you know oh wow fantastic but it's that sort of slightly overlapping dialogue and everything the naturalistic dialogue but this is very impressionistic as well isn't it with some of the camera work yeah uh, just makes you wonder how many other gems there are that i haven't heard of certainly this is the thing i mean Stephen, you discovered this on talking pictures tv didn't you a few months back oh I, well no oh. i discovered it i discovered it years ago to be oh, fair. Right. I, when i took my two watches that i've done for this podcast i um went back to it on my saved on my digibox and realized that the <laughs> Uh, had adverts on and uh, realised that it was from um, 2019 um, when I'd recorded it and I'd watched it then I think that was one of my first watches I I got the idea I'd watched it previously a long time ago but not really paid proper attention to it so that was my first watch 2019 but yes so it's sat on my digibox ever since then partly to do with (laughs) 
knowing that at some point I was going to bring it up for the podcast, but yeah. also because regardless of the podcast, I knew it was a film that I you know, will go back and, and watch at various points because it's um it is a, a, a gem and it is worth rewatches. Definitely. Yeah, I've discovered that. I mean, Anthony and I both watched it a second time. I think we both agree, mate, that the second viewing, that there was still plenty to see and rediscover and, you know, stuff we missed from the first viewing. It's, it definitely mm. stands up. Yep, 100%. Wonderful. Okay, that was Train of Events. It's my choice for the next time the three of us are together, I believe. Yep. Let's take a break. We'll be back after this. chaps that was train of events thoroughly enjoyable thank you Stephen, for bringing that to the table now as it's my choice i'm, I'm gonna go complete change of pace complete change of genre complete change of decade i think anthony in particular is going to enjoy this one if he hasn't seen it before i love a good old london gangster movie and mm. this came out pretty much the same time as get carter Ooh. starring the great richard burton ah yes as Think a character called Vic Dakin backed up by Ian McShane and Nigel Davenport Donald Sindon T.P. McKenna Joss Ackland it's sort of loosely based on Ronnie Cray loosely I say uh, and it's a film called Villain from 1971. Oh, yes. Yeah. Have you seen it? Oh, yeah, I, I had it recorded off the TV for Thanks. years. Yeah, seen it loads of times. Stephen, I think decades. you have, haven't you, Stephen? You've seen I've it as seen well. It, I think I've seen it once only, but I have definitely seen it once. Yeah, this, is, this was my first mini-review for the Talking Pictures TV podcast, however long ago it was, five, six years ago, and I haven't watched it since. And when I had it on VHS, I used to watch it quite often, so really this is a proper watch for me in the long, long time. And I yeah. just remember liking it because it is just, it, it's so out of place for Richard Burton with this dodgy Cockney accent. And <laughs> it, it, it's, yeah. it's brutal, it's, it's gritty, it's, uh, it's not ahead of its time, but it's, it's round about that era when we were getting this sort of genre of movies, like I say, like getting Carter and all that sort of stuff. So, uh, I just thought we need to do something completely different. So, you alright with that, that one? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a definite double bill with Get Carter as well, because it, it's the same it's year, as you said. So... But they're very different. They're similar, but different. Yeah. Know, tropes, but... Yeah, it'd be not... interesting to see that, like you say, what what is there that's that's common to that genre. It's, it's mm. all going to be about... It's, it's a guy... The guy that directed it is a guy called Michael Tushner, who I don't think was famous for absolutely anything else. Just looking now. No, Fear, Fear is the Key, which I think was an old Amicus or Hammer thing. A um, couple of play for today's and, and, and Wicker's World. You know, it was, it was, it was more... <laughs> <laughs> seamless. So, to Wicker's World. It'll be interesting to see, you know, <laughs> Mr. Tushner's like, take on this movie. So. 
Okay, guys, looking forward to that. We'll meet up in a few weeks' time. Before we go, as well as the usual Beatles reference, we also have to reference Anthony's various podcasts, of which I was a guest on one very recently. We did a joint one on Michael Caine. Oh, yes. Getting lots of really positive and lovely feedback for both of those shows, mate. And I really enjoyed it. We need to repeat that format very soon. I think we'll do some other actors. But if you could let the listeners know where they can find you, mate. Yeah, well, that one was on Film Gold, which is my neglected uh, third podcast there. But Life and Life Only, which is psychology and alternative media. And Glass Onion on John Lennon, which is having a bit of a renaissance. Uh, my enthusiasm goes... Not not my enthusiasm for John Lennon, but just after doing four years on one person, that's, you know, mm. ebbs and flows. But it's it's been good recently. Been... Um, don't know where this will come out, obviously, but uh, we just done John Lennon in 1962, which was an incredible year. Yes, I can imagine, actually, yeah. It contrasts the world events. You've got the Cuban Missile Crisis and the world nearly ending with the the Beatles psychodrama, which in its own world is quite important. But when you compare it to the Cuban Missile Crisis, maybe it isn't. (laughs) 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 That's what we do. When you did 1969, again, it's the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, when, when you look at what's going on I mean this is what I find with Rainbow Valley when I do the hits and headlines shows you know everybody remembers <laughs> the music but then when you put like some of the news headlines with that music and you think blimey people are like listening to this and that was going on in the world at the same time mm. yeah it's eye opening stuff yeah that's how I've kept it going really but yeah still going strong four years or more excellent so that's where you can find Anthony Stephen mm. you can find probably on his sofa <laughs> if you wanted to find him <laughs> Or a picket line. Um, <laughs> or a picket line, definitely. <laughs> um, and, but, you know, you, not to neglect yourself with regards to the fact that, you know, you've got not an instinct in cars, but as you referenced uh, a couple of times, the Talking Pictures TV podcast, which is uh, mm. well worth a, a listen, especially, you know, even if you're not actually watching the TV channel. And I do think you get some listeners who are actually, who can't get the channel. Who are so they contribute, yeah. Listen, but, uh, <laughs> Uh, no, that so uh, just to to give you a plug since you're normally giving other people. Thank you so much. Yeah. Okay. This has been Real Britannia. I've been Scott. He's been Stephen. He's been Anthony. We'll be back very soon. Cheers, guys. Take care. See you later, folks. Take care. Bon voyage. Good luck. Thank you.
the British end up, sir. Ha, ha, ha.